Criminal Magic, Chapter 21. Sunday, 5.23, GMT-8. Remorse is memory awake. A presence of now departed acts. Coordinator has had about all she can stand of Elaine Duval and this hurtful of righteous goodness act. Down into Vancouver, because of a weather workaround, and into a van so the cover stays tight on their deal. At least she can sit up straight once they're alone. Still, would have been nice just to drop right into Portland. She's definitely ready to get out of the poverty rags and into something more comfortable. The shoes, they're the worst. On top of that, she's not all that high on the irreversible fact of spending a lot more time with Luz. She hangs from the passenger strap, letting her body weight swing with the lurching tip of the van as it rounds a corner. How long? She asks brusquely. Five. Be there in about five, the driver tosses the response over his shoulder. We are near our place? Luz asks. Yeah, real close. Coordinator is curt. It fries her that Luz looks like she could go another couple days without rest. Here I am in my humpback do-gooder setup, feet swollen like a bastard, and this witch looks fresh as a cucumber. Coordinator's head knows vanity is no friend, but her ego smarts under the lash of false comparisons. Luz remains within herself, trains the power of meditative focus on this moment. Clarity of mind allows her to remain centered on an obligation to be present as time unfolds. In truth, she would not be here if not for the dreams. This thought brings a rare trickle of a smile to her lips. As the van races along, Luz sees mounds of human evidence that life's commonalities are equally distributed north and south. A woman stands brandishing a long finger in the face of a man whose miserably fallen look betrays no more than his sincere desire to be anywhere else. People sleep in doorways, taxi drivers hunch over steering wheels, their eyes glazed, donuts ornamenting their laps. This is her first time north. She breathes in the self-conscious airs and public portrayals of culture by watching the mouth of every speaker she encounters. In paying scrupulous attention to the ways of strangers, she reasons, she will have to spend less time learning the language of their culture. Flying north to Vancouver, Luce was able to see Portland from the air. She was not absolutely certain this trip was the right thing before then. Small, persistent doubts had nattered at her, but after seeing the splay of river courses merging and striking out toward the Pacific from all sides of Portland, she is fully at ease. This is the location the old man from her dream spoke of, the place where water weaves together. Slowly, the van crawls down a narrow alleyway. Their driver cranes his neck to check the numerals on each building front. He stops, honks twice. A steel roll-up rises partway, revealing the figures of several men inside. Here, he says. The one-word report is all the driver feels obliged to deliver by way of notice of their arrival at the destination. One of the men standing in the near dark of the warehouse approaches the van, reaches out, and yanks the handle that opens the sliding door into the cargo space. Lucita, como le va? Gusto de verte. Kali is smiling broadly as he reaches to help the slight woman down. Kali, como andas? She says. He has changed little. Only the light gray in his beard and at the temples suggest that he's aged at all. Coordinator steps down, straightening her back, twisting to loosen her shoulders. Coordinator, welcome back, Kali says, turning his attention toward his other visitor. Coordinator looks directly at Kali for the first time, assessing him, evaluating the veracity of his tone. She decides he actually is glad to see her. Interesting. Nice to see you too, she nods. Can we get out of here? Maybe land somewhere I can get this goddamn dress off? Right now, all she wants to do is move around and feel like she is who she really is. Monday, 6.03, GMT-5. From Huaraz, it's just a short hop over the forbidding, snow-crested wall of the Cerro Blanco into Trujillo. Three hours of sleep is plenty, and answer is already behind the eight ball on time. The others must have been in Portland at least a day already. 
Jump rope leaves a bitter taste in the mouth, but that's the price you pay for a chemical alertness. Answer pushes open a grease-stained door and steps into a restaurant called Puente Viejo, looking for a bite of ceviche. The floors are dirt, and the light is only good if you're under 10, but this place serves the best seafood on the north coast. Concha negra, tiradito, a little something transplanted from Arequipa called rico torrelleno. That's the menu he's got in mind, just the thing to fuel the body before a trip. Buenos, calls out an ancient, roomy-eyed cook. Five minutes later, staring down into the heart of the parmesan-lathered shellfish, adrift in a sea of red sauce, Answer draws in a breath and holds it ever so gently in his belly. The air is pungent, spiced with the random richness of seafood and wine, garlic, cheese as dense as smoked wood. It's the splendid bouquet of accident and history that defines a great kitchen. He opens his mouth and lets go the long-held breath, ever so slightly drawing new air across his lips and onto his tongue. He finishes the meal and walks down into the town square, slowly coming to life in the early moments of the new day. He hails a gypsy cab and directs the driver to the rendezvous spot he's arranged on the outskirts of town. The setup is yet another of Renee's old hookups. The realization leaves Answer saddened at the loss of one of his few real heart connections in the world, and frustrated that he'll have to reconstruct significant transport and financial assets without tall seat-of-the-pants logistics genius. After the pickup, Answer settles into the jump seat of the hopper and belts in. He checks his papers. Today's ID is that of a commercial vendor for one of the Colossus transnational pharmas. It often gets him a few perks. First class, for one, no question. The expectation is that he might tip heavy, and of course, sample tips, or perk passenger like him might be able to leave behind in the airsick bag. Naturally, Answer keeps a few things to cover that line. Always feed the story. You never can tell when you'll need it again. He closes his eyes, but sleep does not appear as an option. Tad too wired for that. A mantra spins up, seeking to settle into place and free up room for Answer's mind and body to merge peacefully within the confines imposed by close travel. But that's not going to get it either. His head will not settle for anything less than confrontation. You would think your own mind would give you a break sometimes, but no such luck. Answer applies the balm of his hands to the burn of bloodshot eyes. In the darkened theater of his imagination, Luce appears, sitting ramrod straight in the crumbly restaurant, telling him she has been anticipating their arrival. His jaguar smiles in the shadow, purring that ground-pulsing purr. The whole fantastic business of the big cat, Rafe Kohler, the Cayman, all of it presses, threatening to suffocate him. Memory calls up Collie ragging on him about the responsibilities of the shaman, the covenant with the living and all that social commitment surplus. Nothing for nothing, and that ain't free, he was fond of saying. Magic comes with a certain implied burden of responsibility. Not like you get the ability to mess with people's heads, see in the dark, turn invisible, take on the life of another, hold things still, and all the rest Lusa showed you without a little social compromise stacked on. Shit, answer. Cully would bone. Sometimes you remind me of those assholes who don't vote. Those bitches figure the privilege of citizenship comes free and clear. Just enjoy that clean democratic air without lifting a finger. Shaman has the same obligation. Get magic, give service. Fair exchange is no robbery. Isn't that what your mom always said? May I bring you anything, Mr. Scheider? The very attentive steward bends down to check. The shock of her voice feels like someone breaking in. He knows that in the beginning, he had at least pretended some social consideration to excuse his actions and interests. Maybe even genuinely felt that way, for a time, sure. He conjures up Collie's bearded face. It's been years since he's seen his friend, and he feels the stir of excitement at the prospect of sitting with him once again, swapping stories. At least Collie's a stand-up guy, Answer thinks idly. That's why I've been doing his laundry all these last ten years. Sometime later... Must be ours. Answer hears the name he scrawled on the passenger manifest. It comes accompanied by a touch on his shoulder that is meant to awaken. Portland in ten minutes, Mr. Scheider. Monday, 9.34, GMT-8. 
Kali leans against a wall of machinery, off to one side, watching as Hedda's team works its way through the prep cycle at the center of the room. Dana is over by the examining table, whispering something to Pillhead John, who is nodding, his eyes roving incessantly around the recently enlarged lab. Hedda is in her environment, floating serenely from one console to another, consulting with a technical aid, and moving to adjust various components of the monitoring array. Everyone wears scrubs. Everyone, that is, except the subject. The body of the Longbones survivor is mounted on a steel evaluating table, draped with a cotton sheet. His quasi-comatose frame is burned into flat relief by the intensity of sulfur overhead lights. Technicians hover, applying monitoring devices at numerous gel-wetted sites. His arms and legs are encircled by soft restraints. Chances of the captive suddenly recovering a strong enough grip on life to rise up from the table during the proceedings are impossibly remote, but nobody is particularly interested in playing the odds, considering what they've heard. The restraints are carefully checked by three different attendants. Collie's impressed by the level of efficiency on display. An old Copeland recording of Appalachian Springtime wafts into the workspace from some distant speakers. It is a viola, cello, and bass version recorded in this same space only three months earlier. His ear tests the product for fidelity. The precise, almost military manner of movement on the work deck pleases his eye, hinting as it does at the bidding of an offstage choreographer with a nuanced understanding of the ballet of common movement. To his left, sitting near the edge of the provisional operating theater stage, Luce and Coordinator wait to see what takes place. Everything is falling into line. There's only one person missing, but Luce tells Cully that the absence will work itself out. An expectant air fills the dome. Everyone is aware, regardless of their individual opinions on whether it should be done or not, that something important is about to happen. This is the first time anyone will have used the pusher technology in an invasive way, and Cully, for one, can see the Rubicon lying before them. There is no doubt it will be crossed, but questions about the results of their trespass fester in his consciousness. Hedda, Collie's tone reflects the tense, contemplative mood he's feeling. I'm guessing your own history working in psychoactive agents for field ops means there's no way we can fully forecast the outcome of what we're getting into, right? At least with Dana, she was cooperating. From what Luz tells us, this subject could be hundreds of years old. You still think we're good? Dr. Bjornley looks him in the eye briefly, displaying only the manner of the scientist at work full confidence. I am aware, she says, that we are creating a possibility whose potentials for error are innumerable. She reaches up to brush something invisible out of her eyes. I would urge you to consider once again the impetus for our work. The story may seem far-fetched, but if these things are in fact occurring, we are obliged to act and act quickly. Any failure to do so could have consequences, as you are well aware. Coordinator walks up to join them. Um, I don't mean to be pushy or anything, she says, but what exactly is it you all plan to do with our man here? Kali is nonchalant. We're going to use a non-invasive extraction technique the good doctor has developed to tap into his memory. Then we'll data mine the results and hope there's something in there that'll help us catch Kohler. That's it. Kali stands, hands on hips, staring into coordinator's intensely green eyes. That's it? She says. Simple's good, Kali says. Simple's good. Coordinator does not seem in the least satisfied that this is simple at all. She opens her mouth to say something, but at the same moment, Luz chimes in. Do not forget this man is still capable of power. What exactly do you mean by that? Hedda asks. The private place of a warrior, she searches for the word. Um, complex. The Cayman's people talk to each other in a unique way. Yeah, we know they have a unique dialect, Kali says. Luz shakes her head. I I'm sorry, not the words, not the talking. She's slightly agitated, nervously scratching the vamp of one foot with the toes of another. It is the other thing, the single mind. Hedda looks quizzical. You said something before, she says. Single mind? Telepathy? Luce looks relieved. 
Yes, she nods vigorously. That's the word. I'm sorry, telepathy. I do not understand exactly what it is you are about to do with the... She points at the pallid body on the sheet of steel. But it is somehow finding a way into the dreaming mind, yes? That's right, Hedda says. What you're saying is essentially right. We will be able to see his memories. I understand, Lou says with concern. But there is danger in passing into the soul of one of these. They are not alone inside. They're linked. Do you see? She turns her eyes on the others, hoping that they are really taking in the truth of what she is saying. Hedda looks at the long-haired woman with an intensity she usually reserves for specimens. She feels engaged, and at the very least, she clearly believes what she is saying. Interesting, Hedda says, maintaining outward calm while her mind is speeding to process the meaning and effects of this new intangible. If these people do indeed have a type of hive mind, then we will certainly be dealing with something unlike our previous experiences. Sounds like you're going to be dealing with a buttload of folks in there. Pill chimes in. Not only that, but if this boy's still hooked up with whatever's taking Kohler, then there's going to be at least one more person in the audience. That's a real twister, thinks Collie. His stomach begins to growl angrily. Oi, he mumbles, gnawing on the joint of his thumb. Don't worry, Hedda says preemptively. The basal responses are significantly repressed in the subject. I do not take seriously the possibility that communication will be possible. Luz fixes her attention on Hedda as the older woman moves off to adjust her instruments so they can meet the expanded bandwidth of informational input they might encounter. Her face is a wreath of wrinkles wrapped into bundles by the mental effort she is exerting as she works. Luz feels a lightness in her chest. She discreetly turns a palm toward the senior scientist's position and sends a broad, flat pane of energy that settles over Hedda's shoulders, just in case. For a flicker of time, she is reminded of her grandmother. She smiles into the back of her hand and turns to watch Kali. Monday, 10.58, GMT-8. Respite from the chaos of his intense work at the lab is what Kohler's body seems to need. If still could experience relief, he would heave a sigh, but that is not his life. Such feelings are the exclusive domain of those like Kohler, and regardless of his effort to merge as efficiently as possible with his borrowed identity, still realizes that certain refinements elude him. He does not regret the losses. Long before their enforced lamination, the separate identities that were still and Rafe shared at least one commonality, absolute absence of regret. And in that regard, the two spirits still coincide in perfect harmony. The Cayman spirit has urged him to act as he always has done, and still understands the nature of the command. He harbors no doubt about his position in the scheme of things, or of the nature of his necessary labor. He is Cayman's agent, dedicated to regenerating and expanding the reach of its followers. From the beginning of time, there has always been one like him at the head of Cayman's forces, trained to do the work. Still, spirit floats, rising and falling with the gentle rhythm of a sleeper's chest. Time expands to meet the needs imposed on it by work. Everything has accelerated since his arrival, and the people working with him are feeling the pressure to complete things. We are very, very close, he thinks. All of Kohler's work, establishing the lab, weaving the Amati project seamlessly into the fabric of their work, managing relations with Hindu mercenaries, salting the new town with informers, and setting the stage for financial expansion, all of it is coming to fruition. But speed is increasingly essential. Those responsible for his flight into ignominy, they are close. He can feel them. And the cat. That scent is like a stain you cannot remove. It clings to the air, even here. They are surely coming, still thinks. But when they do... I will be ready. Among the loyal workers, there is a sense of impending success, of limitless possibility, carefully nurtured by Rafe since the beginning. And the time has come to make use of this group's dedicated labor. In less than two days, they will have the functional capacity necessary to firmly root the clan in its new home. 
None of them, not even those closest to the heart of their well-protected secret, realizes the additional lengths they must go to to make their solution functional. None of these knows the loss of the others. Rafe himself, operating under the blind ego impulse to outlive his own corruption, never understood the full contextual formula for use of Amati. The spell of blindness cast by the Longbones worked in part by piggybacking on the deepest desires of those it fell on to elevate themselves above others, but without revealing to them the degradation of their humanity that would be attached to that final unity. Only still knows what the full recipe for extraction is. He descends from the contemplative heights, slowly easing back into the meditative settle of the body seated on the moss-covered stump. There are risks attached to the moment of truth when his clique of ego prisoners realize that blood sacrifice, the murder of innocence from their own tribe, is the missing key to their own extended life. There will be consequences. Some will rebel, repulsed by the grip of self-interest in this revelation, still knows what will become of those who at the most delicate moment balk at taking the final step. This group like the first, will be suitably downsized. He stands, stretches, and begins walking back to the lab. Massive amounts of preparation remain before the final trials, and the majority of this work cannot be left to helpers, no matter how confident he is in their capacity. Still notices a litter of black and white feathers piled on the forest floor. The disorder and density there tell of a struggle lost, and another won. He eyes the scattered remains as he steps by. Seasonal change in nature is expected, leaving only fractional incremental evidence of ever having occurred. A change like that is coming for him and his new clan. And he increases his foot speed, tramping aggressively over the sodden decay of forest detritus that forms the path back to camp. He opens his mouth and lets his probing tongue taste the remaining bitters of uncertainty riding on the air. The history of the earth itself is a story of catastrophic change, of sudden violent shifts in circumstance. And in times like these, absolutely anything can happen. Monday, 12.01, GMT minus 8. After Dana's fifth session, when the data mining results were revealed to her, she'd suffered a near breakdown. Once they told her about Kohler, about the lab, and her fall, she'd begun to pick up pieces of her own memory, like a wheel pushed finally over a crest of a hill. Until Luz and Coordinator had arrived with their near-dead traveling companion, she had managed to keep those emotions held close. Standing in front of the main gas emissions analyzer, tweaking nitrous levels, she suddenly felt faint, as if she was about to fall down. It only lasted a fraction of a second, and when the sensation abated, her head was filled with an explosive revelation of memory breaking loose from all her deliberate efforts to restrain it. Within seconds, she was inundated by images, people, places, actions, conversations, snippets, a barrage of vignettes and serial frames whose continuity and contextual relationships were anything but certain. She had to steady herself against the desktop. Once that little temporal wobble passed, she felt an overwhelming sensation of certainty and knowledge. It was clear how events were connected, and she revealed without a speck of doubt what had precipitated her flight from the forests of eastern Washington back to the refuge of her starting place here in Portland. There had been a confrontation with Kohler. She remembers him now, the simmering shadow of a man whose words made her certain he was hiding something. It was this abiding sense of trust in her own intuition that prodded her to begin looking in the logbooks and analysis dispersion tables for something. But for what? The research. In her gut, she simply knew that something was badly wrong. Kohler wasn't around very much, but the minders always were. He had a crew of cronies that oversaw all the activities of the lab. They were supposed to be replicating genes, cloning for purposes of establishing herbal medicinals in new environments, saving what couldn't be saved in the forest because the forests were dying. That was the purpose that brought Dana to the Action Direct secret labs in the first place. 
She could imagine no better way to use her substantial skills than in the service of a huge population whose health needs were ignored for lack of profitability. But then she stumbled on a series of trials, whose purpose was curiously estranged from all the other work in the lab. She began to accumulate evidence of this departure from the putative goal, the models of the plant, the morphology. At first she doubted her own conclusions. Why would a lab full of greens be working on, on Fountain of Youth? The harder she queried her own conclusions, the firmer the evidence got. And Dana was nothing if not direct. She went to the head of lab services and dropped the suspicion right down on her. Flat denial. Dana requested an investigation. Kohler arrived. There were discussions. Dana was called to give her version of what she'd reported. Sitting in the room with Kohler and his two senior researchers, Dana had an instant of gut-sure revelation. She was in danger. Her memory of the moment practically took her breath away. What evidence do you have to support the contention that Mr. Harris's team is working on an illicit project, Miss Ford? The director, a woman of some political charms, was doing the talking. I, I have the... Dana began, but before she'd finished the sentence, she saw a look in Rafe Kohler's eyes as he stared at her from his silent perch on the director's couch. She clutched her stomach. I'm sorry, could you excuse me? She said. She didn't have to fake the whitewashed face the others could see. She was scared shitless. I'm, uh... She flashed a well-made look of embarrassment. I'm having cramps. I'm sorry, they're not usually this bad. I'll be right back. She cradled her stomach and made for the washroom. She made it into the stall at the end of the line. There was a cold air return vent above the seat. She climbed up on the exposed drain pipe, plugged her fingers into the wire screen covering the conduit, and yanked as hard as she could. On the third try, the grate snapped free of the sheetrock. Bloody finger joints didn't hurt a bit. She pulled herself up and levered her way into the sheet metal tubing by kicking off the top rail of the stall divider. Two and a half minutes later, she dropped onto the central air conditioning and heating room floor. Kohler's eyes had followed every elbow-crunching rib of movement along the way. She had never seen a look that could kill before, but she didn't have to do any research to know one when she saw it. That bastard meant to slab her, plain and simple. The rest was a jumble. Into the woods, finally a road and ride south, but she remembered every nerve-wracking bit of the rest of her escape, including the bitter cold rain she had soaked in outside sitcom. At the time, the discomfort didn't face her. Getting out, getting as far away from that look, those intentions, was the only thing she cared about. As she ran, she tried to assure herself. She lied to herself, told herself over and over the whole thing would blow by. After all, who would be so whacked out that they'd invest time and effort to track down someone as insignificant as a lab rat? No chance. She felt her luck was turning when she got the job working for Pick for a collective snap. The collective might have a place for her, but that blew down, and she ended up running all over again. Shit, she even remembered the tree climb, seeing the look on that guy. What was his name? Hughes. More than you know. That's what he said to me. More than you know. She remembered it now. The whole shittery. She told Pillhead John as soon as she had recovered. If the other Newtowners had any doubt about what Coordinator and this woman Luz were telling them, that little bit of news sealed the deal. Please join us next week for Chapter 22 of Criminal Magic. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. If so, please leave a rating and review so that others can find us as well. Thanks for listening.